Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneur mindset and skills. In Season 5, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. I am very excited to have Fahd Alatab on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Fahd, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be here. I am excited as well. And in this interview, we're going to be diving into one of the greatest challenges that most individuals face in their life, which is how to successfully manage other people. Most people just get thrown into being a manager all of a sudden. There is no training. That was my experience. All of a sudden, I was 23 and I was managing somebody for the first Mm -hmm. time. And I knew absolutely nothing about what management was. And I made so many different mistakes. So, Fahd, what do you feel is the most common mistake that first-time managers make? That's that's a good question. Most common mistake. Um, I, I I think there's a there's a grouping of mistakes and, and it tends to be on the extremes. So I think you get, you get first time managers who tend to be on the extreme control side. I got to make sure everything gets done and everyone does it well. So we're going to have project charts over everything. We're going to daily, we're going to check in on everything daily. And it's a super kind of micromanagement, super, super assertive and uh, you know, kind of like roll up my sleeves and, it, we we call it the 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 pace setter approach. It's kind of like you're I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna work with you. I'm gonna run with you. I'm gonna go run as fast as, as I can, and you're gonna you're gonna follow me. And and that's that's how you're gonna succeed because because I'm gonna run as fast as possible. Um, we kind of take the leadership by example uh, uh, idea and to an extreme, and that's how kind of managers will, will burn out. That's like one grouping. The other grouping I find is the the commander, the the command and conquer kind of style. The whole like oh, well I'm the manager now, so I'm in charge. So this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to get it done. And the reason commanding exists for so long is because it actually gets some success. Some managers, they're like, yeah, yeah, I, my team did what they told them and it was good. And, and we got, we, we did well. And then you lose your staff in six months and eight months because, you know, they hate being on your team. The, the complete opposite end is that you get an extremely democratic leader. It's a person who's like, oh, yeah, yeah do what you want. Uh, yeah, whatever you think is best. And is is they they believe they believe what they're doing is empowering, but they're on the other end of the spectrum. And what they're doing is they're 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 trying to give the people so much space and freedom that there is no direction, there is no goals, there is no role clarity, there is no understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And so I find most leaders fall on the ends of these extreme, and their entire battle and their leadership growth is to find that space in the middle. And so we we tend to fall on one of the extremes based on the perhaps sometimes a past experience, either we've been managed through the commanding style. So we manage on the commanding style or we've been managed with a commanding style. So we were like, I'm never going to be like that. I'm going to give people so much space. I'm not going to tell them what to do because my manager told me what to do and I hated it. And so we'll tend to either follow or completely rebel on the opposite side of that spectrum. And so a lot of our first managers struggle with finding that balance. Each person is different. And when you, a new person starts reporting into you for the first time, often managers need to adapt their approach a little bit. That the command and control might work with somebody who's really junior, who's just starting off, who actually likes that. But let's say someone's more senior and they're very autonomous, that's like their worst uh, management style possible. So 
how can or should managers adapt their style based on the context of the individual that they're working with? Yeah. Yeah. I think Scott, you hit the hit nail on the head. I think we talk about it often is that um, I think one of the best lessons learned in leadership is that most of us think that leaders lead groups. Um, we don't lead groups. You lead individuals collectively. Um, and there's a slight nuanced difference there. You lead individuals collectively. As you said, you have to genuinely change your approach for each person until you get to the point where you've created a culture where people conform together. But it starts with individualizing your approach. And I think a lot of leaders expect that people will adapt to their style. Oh, I, I'm, I'm just messy. So like, you'll just have to work with me. Oh, I just, I like to work to deadlines. So you'll just have to work with me. A lot of leaders expect that their team individualize their approach to them because they're the leader. I'm the manager. I, I get more leeway and it's the exact opposite, right? I think that's where you get sayings like, oh, leadership at the top is lonely. Well, it's lonely because you're staying at the top. Like you should walk down the hill and join the people you're leading because if you're there with them and you adapt to their style, then it's not lonely. It's, 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 it's uh, engaging. So then comes the question, I think you said, okay, well, if we agree that individualized leadership approach is key, how on earth do you do that? I think, I think one way um, I suggest everyone does is to learn, to fundamentally learn a, a, uh, a style of hum like human behavior dynamics. So they're personality tests, right? We've all done some short form of personality test. Uh, we'll do it. We'll laugh at it. Look at the report. Oh, what do you have? What do I have? Ah, put it away and it's done. And that's great because it's a fun exercise, but it's not a, you haven't built a skill. If you can actually uh, learn a certain personality style, don't even, be, I'm not saying become certified on it, but pick up the book on it, try to identify it. If you can identify human behaviors and patterns, then you don't have to, I don't have to put Scott in a personality test. I can spend some time with you and be like, oh, he has these patterns. I, I can kind of adapt to these patterns. I have a framework that I can use to understand human behavior. And so I think every manager should adopt a framework. There's many out there. There's many good ones. There are a few bad ones. I, I like, I use DISC, but I'm not even, that's not even what I'm recommending. I'm recommending a framework for understanding human behavior. And if you try and understand human behavior to that level, I think you'll do significantly better. But then even easier than that, I think managers don't ask the question, hey, how would you like to be managed? <laughs> hey, how would you like to be communicated to? Hey, how do you like receiving feedback? How do you like receiving praise? Uh, how can I be better for you? I, that's even the simplest way. And, and I think that's, that's, that's really the answer. The process of a manager making themselves uncomfortable and saying, give me feedback and also pulling out the dissent is something that is, is super important. I was just speaking with somebody recently about this and it's not just say, saying, hey, give me feedback. Cause often if you say that and you're in a position of power people aren't gonna be that honest but it's really drawing out the feedback. And that's what people, I've often read that in terms of leadership roles is that a lot of it is drawing out the dissent. How do you get people to say what they actually think? And by the way, I'm not perfect at this either. It's something that you learn over time. But I think that that transition from being afraid of feedback to drawing out the feedback from individuals, especially people who report into you, is something that is very important. I, I totally agree. And, 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 and so actually, that's where I would go one step further, Scott, and I say, like, uh, we tell managers... You know, we give feedback privately, right? That's key to make sure that when we're giving feedback to employees, uh, we do it privately. But when you're receiving feedback, I want you to do it publicly because I want your team to see that you're open to it. 
as a, as a leader has to receive criticism publicly, but has to deliver criticism privately. And I think if we're open to that, because what's going to happen is the first one who's a bit courageous is going to be like, Scott, you know, I don't like when you do this. And how you react in that moment is going to tell everyone else, does Scott actually take feedback? Or is he about to, right? How does he react to that person? I think like if we if we take it there, I think uh, it's, it's so much better. And then give them a framework. I, I like, I, I love McKinsey's framework. It's the FBI framework, situation, behavior, impact. It's like, give me a situation and the behavior I had and the impact it had on the team and you. And it's like, oh, you just broke it down for me. Oh yeah, you know what, Fahad, the last meeting, you, you talked a lot, kind of overbearing and everyone just followed you. You didn't give anyone else a chance. That, that was the behavior and that's the impact. And I was like, oh. Thanks. Like that's, you know, so, yeah. One of the things I found helpful, especially when giving feedback to managers is the perception equals reality. So sometimes people will say, oh, that didn't happen. Or I don't agree with that. And just saying what you can't disagree with is that these three or four people perceived the meeting. That is an objective fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I think that's, that's such a good one. It's so often like, no, that's not, you know, as a manager, you almost want to defend yourself, right? No, it's not what I did. It's not what I said. But yeah, I think as you said, just take it in. Do, can you chew on their words, right? Can you chew on their feedback before you spit, spit it back out? Right? It just <laughs> Sometimes just saying nothing, right? Or not, or saying other than thank you for the feedback and then just stop. And this is, again, I don't always do that, but I think that it's something that is, is really important because sometimes even asking too many clarifying questions when you get feedback can come off de uh, defensive. On the topic of how to foster an environment where people feel safe in giving feedback, I think it's really important to talk about the concept of psychological safety, which I saw as one of the things that you train people in through your program. So what advice do you have for managers on how to foster psychological safety within their teams? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I think, I think, I think, you know, we, we, we get into the term psychological safety and I, I usually like to start off by saying like, let's, you know, what, what is psychological safety defined? It's, it's defined as um, the willingness for someone to take an interpersonal risk in a group without fear of repercussion, right? Like that's what it's defined as, which means like, can I speak out? Can I give feedback? Can I say my opinion? the whole, there's no such thing as bad ideas. Well, if I say a bad idea, am I going to get ridiculed? That's like the thought that's happening in the back of our head. And I think, you know, if, 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 if some of the listeners here are like, Oh, do I have that? Do I not have that? I mean, think about the moment where you start a new job, how many thoughts are going through your head of like, I don't want to say anything stupid. Oh, I don't want to be caught. Like I got, I got a job that I don't feel fully qualified for. They're going to find out. Like everyone has this feeling that someone's going to find out that they're not qualified enough for their job when they start a new job like that. And so what psychological safety does is it, is it calms that part of the brain. Why do we need to calm that part of the brain down? Because actually what happens is the amygdala hijacks the frontal lobe and you actually become more stupid. <laughs> you actually, you, you can't make good decisions. You can't communicate well. It's called emotional hijacking. It happens in the brain. It's when the amygdala shuts down the frontal lobe. And if someone doesn't feel psychologically safe, it happens often and managers don't realize when they're doing it, when they get upset, when they have a bad mood, when something goes wrong, that they are actually shutting down and emotionally hijacking their employees time. So the question is, if, if, if emotional hijacking is so prevalent, right, how do we create psychological safety so that that doesn't happen? It's actually funny because it's, 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 it's kind of one of those um, 
you have to avoid creating a not safe environment first. And that's the harder part than creating the safe environment. It's like you have to avoid being pessimistic is more important than being optimistic. The avoidance of pessimism actually creates better success in individuals than the addition of optimism. And so the avoidance of a non-psychologically safe environments is more important than the creation of an ultra psychologically safe environment. And so the first step is, well, how do I avoid some of what's already happening that creates negative psychological safety? That I, being aware of our moods, <laughs> I, like moods are contagious. How I feel will make you feel a certain way. You know, I know we, we, we obviously in the world of personal development, we always say you got to be 100% responsible over who you are and what you do. That's for sure. But neurologically speaking, you can make someone feel another way, a way a comedian makes you laugh, a way a movie makes you sad. You make, you give emotions. Emotions are contagious. So if a manager doesn't realize that their emotions are contagious, then they're creating emotionally hijacking situations all the time. If they're upset, if they're frustrated, if they're not having a, a, a good, a good space. The other thing is it comes down to trust. And trust is like, do you, do you do what you said you were going to do? So many managers are overloaded, so they overpromise and underdeliver. That's it. In every startup, every manager has the same exact problem. There's too much for me to do. I tell my team I'm going to do it, and then I don't do it. And this happens over and over again. And so what you're doing is you're destroying trust. It's like, oh, I, Scott said he's going to do it, but eh, I'll give him an extra two weeks. He's probably not going to get it done. Like that's a, and, and managers will say, well, I don't even trust myself. Yeah, that's scary. I don't trust myself. There's like two nouns there. It's almost as if like, you're like you know, how, do you, how do you create trust? If you don't have trust within yourself, you don't know that you're going to do what you're going to say. Or what, you, what you, you're going to, yeah, you're going to do what you've said. Then how can other people trust you? I think the last part is around honesty and transparency. Um, I, managers kind of start acting like parents for their staff. And they do so, they're like, oh, I'm just trying to protect the team. I'm not going to tell them this information because I'm trying to protect the team. I don't want them to know that things aren't going well. I'm going to try and protect the team. That's a really interesting like, thought. These are like grown adults who are brilliant and probably better than us in many of what they do. Why do you think we have to protect them? Transparency of information doesn't, like, you know, being non-transparent doesn't mean you're protecting the team. Actually giving them the information, the bad news, the good news, but being able to deal with the reality of what it is, but having a narrative for where you want to go, that's what makes a difference. That's what makes the, the leadership, not, not hiding the information. So I think psychological safety comes down to, do you have integrity, which is, do you do, you do what you're going to say? Do you have transparency? Are you honest with what you do? And then creating social bonds. Social bonds at the end of the day are the number one factor for psychological safety. So as we become friends, we share culture, we share language, we share values. I feel comfortable with you. I feel safe with you. Do I belong to the group and the ideas that you belong to with me? That's what takes us to those next levels. It can be challenging in an all remote environment, building those kind of uh, social bonds. It's probably something that you've talked about with many managers. What advice do you have for managers on how to foster these social bonds when operating in a largely virtual environment? You know, I, I struggle with this one too. And I, I don't know if I have a perfect answer for it. I, you know, we all, we all have our daily standups, right? Or you have your project meetings. Make sure you take social time. Make sure that the project daily standup doesn't have to be, you know what, some daily standups, no one actually reported their status and they just put it on Slack instead. Instead, they spent daily standup talking about what they did for Canada Day, like building those social bonds. The other thing is, I think 
you can't get away from uh, in-person events. You have to do those. You got to do some team retreats. You're saving a ton of money without having the office anymore. So take the team out on a team retreat once a year, twice a year, build social bonds. If there's a, if there's a cohort of people in Ottawa and Montreal and Toronto, wherever they are, get them out, let them have lunch together. Like, I think just like that needs to still be part of our remote culture is that we're, we're remote when we need to be, and we are in person when we need to be to be to build those social bonds and those collaborations. And then we create those water cooler moments in between meetings. An important element of psychological safety is the ability for people to have productive conflict. That conflict isn't always a bad thing. It can actually be a really good thing. And certain books like Radical Candor and the related concept have been popularized in recent years. What advice do you have for managers on how to foster productive conflict in the workplace? And what does productive conflict look like? Yeah, yeah. That's, and, and so I think to, to, to understand what productive conflict looks like, we have to look at the spectrum. What are the opposite? What are the ends? What are the extremes of it? So on the one extreme, you've got this artificial harmony, right? This is like, we're all going to pretend like everything is okay, right? So, you, you know, if you've ever been, if you've ever worked for the government of Canada, like it could be, you know, you're sitting there and, you know, Mary from HR says this idea and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good idea. And no one wants to engage or debate or actually break down an idea. So you've got this, like, on one end, you've got artificial harmony, where we walk on eggshells and we pretend everything is okay at all times. And everyone's doing a great job and everything anyone does is good. And it's just positive, positive, positive. On the other side of the, on the, side of the spectrum is, is the mean-spirited conflict, the, like, judgmental, personal attacks of, like, I don't like you. I don't like your personality. I don't like who you are. And, and this is where someone seems to debate and have conflict at every point for like everything. You're like, everything I say, you debate everything I say. You're... And it's like attacking and it's attacking the person. And so we get these extremes. So what does this productive conflict that looks like in the middle? Well, it tends to be about the idea, not the person, about the project. It tends to be deep. So not shallow, not like, I don't like that. Okay, well, no, I disagree with our positioning of this product because I think we're missing part of our market, right? It's deep. So one, it's not about the person. Two, it, it has depth. It's thoughtful. Like it, I'm disagreeing. I'm engaging in a debate, a discussion, a, a, a something that, uh, um, that, you know, it, it, that we attack at the, the problem we're facing, the conflict we're having is about the problem not about each other. And so we're on the same team and we're attacking the problem. And so this takes two levels. It takes a maturity for the person that his project is being criticized, right? Like it's tough, right? And I think Ed Catmull in his, in, in his book, Creativity Inc. does a great way of illustrating this. So when you put the director and you're giving them criticism on their movie, this is their baby, their darlings, their characters. And you're telling them, I don't like Woody, Woody sucks. And you're like, what? you're an asshole. Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you, like, like, these are your babies. And so how, how did, you know, uh, Ed Campbell create that environment, which is the third part is, is they created that brain trust. So they said, we have dedicated moments for really deep, intense feedback. And so everyone joins the meeting knowing, all right, it's going to be a little bit of a bloodbath. Like we're going to tear some, some stuff up. Are you ready for this? And so no one feels like they're surprised. Everyone comes prepared and all the feedback and all the notes they give are suggestive, not prescriptive. And that's where you get good conflict. Because if the manager is saying, well, I'm going to debate your idea, but my suggestions are actually prescriptive, this is what I expect you to do, then you're no longer debating. 
You're giving demands and orders. The suggestions that happen during conflict must be suggestive, not prescriptive. They cannot, the only person that decides which parts they want to take or not is the owner of that project. And giving them that autonomy allows for deep conflict. And that's where some people get it confused. And you know, managers be like, well, I want everyone to conflict. Yeah, but when they conflict with you and they disagree with your idea, how do you react? <laughs> there are many cases where there can be a kind of fake conflict where, okay, the manager says, it's fine, give feedback, be as honest as possible. But then there's a subtext and unwritten rules in the workplace that, no, you actually can't. I think of an example of when I was at a uh, you know, bigger company and they would do these town halls and there was an expectation. You don't really ask challenging questions in the town hall. You ask questions that make you look good to, to, uh, to the leadership. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's complete bullshit, but, but we play the charade and we waste time in playing. We're all gonna pretend, right? It's the story of the emperor's new clothes. We all gonna walk around pretending that he has clothes on. We all gonna walk around, do this town hall, do the questions pretending it's, it, this, is, this is okay. I, I think that is where there's inherent distress. And that's where I say we have to create an environment th that focuses on avoiding unsafe, like unsafe psychological safety, like, 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 and instead of crazy psychological safety, because in your environment, your cue, even though your managers could be like, oh, we're psychologically safe. Underneath all that, you're like, nah, this place ain't psychological safe. They don't actually want me to ask the difficult questions. So no matter how many times it's gonna be repeated, they lose, and that's the integrity piece. Do the values you actually speak out match with what you do? And if they don't, stop even talking about the values because you're doing yourself a disservice. You're simply pointing to everyone where you guys are actually lacking. And this is where I think managers struggle. They're like, oh, we're gonna do a values exercise. Great, but are you determined to draw a line in the sand and truly live with those values? Because if you do a values exercise and you don't live with those, you're destroying trust more than creating it. You're actually doing yourself a disservice. So until you're ready to live by those values, don't start the conversation. Psychological safety comes before it, right? Like it comes by, by developing those relations. And in many ways, when you're CEO or you're a member of a leadership team in general, you're a, you're a culture steward. That's one of your main things. And one person, one thing that one person just said to me last week was that culture is defined by what are the worst behaviors that the leadership team will accept. Yeah, I love oh the worst behaviors that the team accepts. It's so true. When we talk about when we talk about creating values, I always talk about upper bounds and lower bounds. So we always create upper bound values. Be create integrity, like have integrity. That's an upper bound. So what's the lower bound of uh, have integrity? Is if someone lies, do we do we cut them at the knees? Like do we say they're no that person lied to me once? What's the lower bound of that value? Like, look at all your values in your organization. If you don't have a lower bound that's clearly defined, you're not living exactly what you just said. What, what, do, you, what do you tolerate? Do we tolerate eye rolling? Do we tolerate someone being disrespectful on a call? Do we tolerate yelling? I was, I was part of a team that tolerated yelling. I was like, what is, this is okay? Oh yeah, we're having debate. Mm, no, that was, that was mean. That wasn't debate. Like there was, I could see it. I could, I could feel it. Right. And, and, and some people are not going to speak about it. I think, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and I think it goes into one other piece. Um, and this one is one I've had to continuously try and learn and relearn, but you protect the team over the individual. You protect the culture over the team. You protect the community, right? You have to protect the larger group over the individual piece of the group. 
and, and Ed Campbell takes that further. He says, you protect the idea from the team. We have to create environments where good, bad ideas can live long enough to become good. And we have to protect it. And so I think you, you got to really think about what are you protecting when you are allowing certain behaviors? Are you protecting the individual? You're protecting the team. And always putting the goals of the corporation over the value of specific individuals. And it's recognizing, yes, you might have to make a difficult decision around a specific individual, but as a leader, you're accountable to the corporation. You're accountable to the community. You're not accountable to specific uh, individuals. And sometimes, and that's one of the challenges I think of leadership is you have to make tough decisions that might go against an individual or a small group of people, but it's for the benefit of the broader community. And you always have to weigh the pros and cons of that. And those are the tough decisions, right? That's, that's the leaders at the end of the day have to take bets. And that's when your leadership muscle grows is when you've had to make a trade-off and you realize you can't win it all. You've got to choose a part of it. You've got to cut off an arm to save the leg. You got, you got to choose a bet. You got to, I bet that this is the positioning of our market. I bet that this is what's best for our customer. And, and you go down that bet. And sometimes you, you, you die on that bet, right? Like, and then that's, that's, that's part of the leadership is making decisions and ambiguity. Life and leadership for that matter is all about trade-offs. You decide to do one thing, it means you can't do something else. And I think the sooner that leaders or individuals realize you can't do it all, particularly in an age governed by FOMO, the more effective that they're going to be as individuals and also as leaders going forward. On the topic of personal development, I saw another thing that you coach people on is how to be effective coaches as managers. What's some basic advice that you can give to managers on how to foster their coaching habit? This is one we all need, myself included. Um, stop talking. <laughs> I think the best thing a coach can do is stop giving advice and simply ask more questions, right? Someone tells us a problem and we paint a picture. Most times you don't even understand the problem. I was part of a cohort where we had these sales consultants come in and help us develop our sales funnel or you know, our pitches. This was early in one of the startups I was working with. And the, 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 the sales consultant asked me, okay, tell me a little bit about what you're pitching. So I started telling him, okay, so this is what you need. And he dove right into it. And I was like, mm, no, you don't understand my problem. You completely missed the point because he didn't ask any clarifying questions. Not just clarifying questions, he didn't go deeper. He didn't, and I think most of us do that. We think we understand what the other person's saying. So we want to jump into advice because that's what we think leadership and mentorship is. That's what we think coaching is. Um, and coaching actually really isn't coaching is allowing someone to uncover the answer themselves. The whole point of coaching is to walk someone through a set of questions where they can come to an answer themselves, and then you can nudge them the last 20%. Maybe if you're lucky, you can nudge 30% if you have a really good relationship. But if you're having to teach someone something absolutely new, recognize that it's not going to stick that first time that coach completely new concept takes a while and it has to come through self-discovery with added bits of flavor that you can have. So if you hold on to the idea of self-discovery, realize you have to ask a lot of questions, shut up and let the person talk and then ask questions that like use, use, you know, I think is uh, uh, Chris Voss who, who wrote the, uh, you know, never split the difference. Anyways, he has a, a great line, right? He says, just repeat the last two words with a question mark. Right. So if Scott's like, yeah, you know, I'm really having trouble with my team. He's like your team. 
yeah, well, actually this one person, right? Like just like repeat the last two questions of the question mark and the person will go further or ask, and what else? And, and, and what else? Oh, and, you know, and, and let them, let them unpack it. I think the other part is that I think we said this about leadership, but coaching has to be individualized. Your leadership has to be individualized. So ask a lot of questions, but understand what that person is, is looking for and that person needs um, and get to the root of the problem by asking, well, what's the challenge here? What do you need from me? And, and they'll get more clear to you to actually be able to finally get to the point where you can help. I think the last thing is we have to understand that there's different types of coaching. There's coaching for performance and there's coaching for development. Coaching for performance is when you're mid game and you're playing basketball and I'm like, you know, set a pick, set a pick, go, go get the rebound. And it's like, I'm giving you instructions mid game and it's running and it's high pace. It's, it's, it's to get you to perform at a higher level coaching for development is what happens during practice. All right. I want you to try to run the play on your own. Okay. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to let you try and figure it out. Coaching for development gives you, give them scenarios, let them experiment, give them scenarios, let them experiment. There's time for coaching for performance. There's time for coaching for development. Most of us only do coaching for performance because in business world, everything feels like game time. But when we look at the sports world, which we always compare to, they play two games a week, football, they play one game a week, hockey, they play three games a week. That's like what? Six hours total seven hours, eight hours of their entire work week where they're practicing and they're training the majority of the other time. We have that equation flipped. We give people two, three hours of personal development a week. The rest, you need to be performing. That's an interesting trade-off. We don't give enough time for development, yet we want all our managers to be coachings, right? So a coach has to give their team time to learn if you expect a coach. Absolutely. Investing in personal development is probably one of the things that will drive the strongest return on investment than anything you do. But it's in that Eisenhower uh, diagram, it's something that's important, but not urgent. So as a result, most managers say, oh, I don't have time to work with a coach or I don't want to study up on this specific thing because it's not urgent, but it's arguably one of the things that is the biggest game changers. And when you interview and, and, and on this podcast, I've talked with a lot of prominent entrepreneurs. And when they say what have been the biggest game changers in their life, uh, it's been working with a coach. It, it's exactly it. And what's so interesting is when we give staff, when we give our team members time to learn, we think, oh my God, I'm losing productivity. They come back so excited to try and implement what they learned. Like giddy. Oh my God, I learned this. Music. I want to try this. And they're like super pumped and they go above and beyond because they learn something and learning actually releases a ton of happiness and joy emotions in us. And so then we associate learning with my manager who gave me time and my job and I'm happier and I'm more engaged and now I'm solving bigger problems, right? So giving people time and it's, you know, it's, it's fun you mentioned that Scott, because, because I think also, you know, when we, we, we have our leadership development program uh, that we work with startups with and their managers. And sometimes I get with, for VPs of talent, they're like, Oh, do you have a, do you have like a two day version of your program? I'm like we used to, but you don't learn leadership in two days, <laughs> right? Like, like it's got, you, you learn it through ongoing, continuous feedback and learning. And so we have it as a coaching program and you do some learning then you get some coaching, then you do some learning, you get some coaching. But I think as you've noted, I mean, Scott, I, I see, I don't know if people see the video, but you're here laughing because think about how many years of mistakes it's taken for you to get to the leadership level that you're on. Like it simply takes that with mentorship and coaches and enough employees to tell you off over your mistakes, right? That you're like, I've learned, I've grown, I've reshaped, you know? And, and so unless we put our leaders in those situations, they're not, they're not going to learn. Agreed. The most important work, as an ancient rabbi once said, is the work that has no end. And 
I've said that many times on this podcast, but it applies to personal development, applies to being an effective uh, manager. Fod, it has been a true pleasure speaking with you. I highly recommend people check out uh, Fod's website, uh, which is Unicorn Labs, as well as his personal website, which is uh, his, his name. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. I think your program is super unique and really well thought out. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Scott, for having us. And congratulations on everything you've done with Venture for Canada. It's been a, it's a pleasure to join you here and a uh, uh, pleasure to uh, have become, uh, in, in, be in your presence. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormiston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.